Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are on with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And um, I'm on here with uh, my usual podcast compadre, and uh, that is Michael Colon, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger. And we had wanted to get on here in general because it had been a while since we had been on the podcast, um, ever since uh, being at the old Stone House uh, with Kim Mayer. And um, we, we wanted to get on here one way or another, but unfortunately – uh, we we have a, a a sad topic to talk about, and um, but but it it's still great to celebrate his life, and that is the late great Brooklyn's own Joe Pignatano. Um, Mike, welcome to the podcast as always, and uh, you know to his family, we 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 send out our condolences. Hello, Sam. Thank you for having me, and uh, you're right. You know. Very prominent member of the Metzian family. Uh, very prominent in my childhood. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Pignatano and and Rue Walker were as familiar to me as any other players. Uh, that's how uh, how much they stood out, and and you know how much of fan favorites that even the coaches were. Yeah, and you know, so he. He's one of the, the few that really – I mean, there, there's some that bridge the, you know, National League legacy between the Brooklyn Dodgers, some even with the obvious – obviously, of course, Willie Mays with the New York Giants, uh, to the New York Mets. Uh, Pignatano really seemed to – I mean, he made a, an impact, of course, on the Los Angeles Dodgers, but it, it, it obviously never forgot his roots. Uh, you know, just being uh, uh, born and bred in Brooklyn. And we're going to get a little bit more into that as I do some research. I know what high school he went, in, uh, he went to, but I don't know what neighborhood he's from. Um, but let, let's dive right into your memories uh, of Joe Pignatano. Did you hear anything about the Brooklyn side of things? Obviously, you know, you and I were discussing beforehand that you don't know exactly what neighborhood he's from but you must have also understood that he was from Brooklyn at the time. Uh, I did. Uh, and somebody pointed that out to me as a, as a young child. Uh, and you know, if you're from Brooklyn and you knew, how could you not, uh, you know, but look, he, he managed to get in a handful of games for Brooklyn before the team moved out to Los Angeles. And, uh, he managed to get in a, a bunch of games with the New York Mets. In the, in the final year of his career, his playing career in uh, 1962. That's uh, Those are two nice bookends, you know. But uh, you're right. Uh, I'm not quite familiar with which neighborhood he's from, but he did go to uh, high school downtown Brooklyn. And what I didn't know is that he's uh, related, a cousin of Pete Falcone. Oh, 
remind me again, because I'm I'm ignorant. I know the name. Just remind me again who Pete Falcone is. Uh, Pete Falcone is a pitcher. Uh, we acquired him uh, from the St. Louis Cardinals, I believe, in 1978 or 79. Uh, and uh, he was a left-hander, and he was from Brooklyn. You know, I'm seeing some things pop up here. Uh, and I don't know whether Joe was uh, – he lived in Bay Ridge during his time with the Mets – uh, being a coach, uh, or whether he's from Bay Ridge originally. And I've been trying to fish some, um, I've been trying to fish some of the, the, uh, the, the obituaries, of course, to see exactly where he was from. But I do know uh, uh, he's, he went to Westinghouse High School, which, uh, what, what do you know about the high school? Because I'm seeing that it's a technical high school. Is that correct? It, it's the same one that's still down near Metrotech? Uh, that's correct. It's on the Tillery Street side of Metrotech Center, uh, the whole quad area there. And uh, that school goes back. You know, it's got some history behind it. And they actually teach you practical stuff <laughs> that you can actually take forward in life with you. <laughs> well, there's also a, a college down that way um, that's uh, dedicated to uh, technology, the Institute of Technology, the New York Institute of Technology, right? It, it, it seems to be uh, there, there's a lot of technical stuff in downtown Brooklyn. Sure. And uh, if you think about, you know, the times, uh, a lot of that was required. Uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard was still in, you know, full force and uh, employing a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different skills. And uh, the whole waterfront, you know, it was still active uh, post-war, uh, still a lot of shipping going on. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, it, it, tell us about the, the tomato garden. This seems to be something that gets brought up a lot. Like, you know, arguably just as famous as he was for being such a part of the the Mets family. Uh, he he was the he was the fellow gardener. He he was the the family gardener of uh, Alpha <laughs> Bullpen, correct? Well, if you were a Mets fan, you know you knew about it. You knew Joe Pignatano started a tomato garden out in the bullpen, in the Mets bullpen, out in right field. Uh, and you just knew. And, you know, on uh, homestands, you would see him out there attending to them. Uh, if you got there early, you know, back then, you can get into the ballpark two hours prior to the start of a game and, and watch both teams conduct mm -hmm. infield and batting practice. And, uh, you know, so if you got out there real early, you would actually catch him out there. Yeah. Did you ever have uh, – did you ever catch him? I did. You know, you run out there in the load section, and you can just talk down. And uh, I, I don't think I ever went anywhere beyond, like, hi, Joe. <laughs> I was a youngster, you know. <laughs> Not too young. I, I, I can conduct a conversation. I was, uh, you know, 9, 10, and 11 uh, in the late 70s. Uh, I turned 13 in 1980. So, you know, he, he's a big part of my childhood uh, as a Met fan, you know. Yeah, but I would run so like to the load section the, uh, all, all the... Say again? Go ahead. 
No, no go ahead. I would have run out to the right field load check and just yelled down, hi, Joe. And he'd look up, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really, that's beautiful. Um, this this is, I want to cite uh, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, uh, their obituary on Joe Pignatano. Uh, this is John Tor, uh, Torrenly, excuse me, I believe it is, uh, who's the sports editor. Um, and where was I? Uh, oh, yeah, he was – well, I'll start here. He was fairly committed to taking care of his tomatoes, former Mets pitcher Jim McAndrew told the Associated Press. It was Joe's thing, a lot of love and effort and TLC. A fixture at Brooklyn Cyclones games when the team brought MLB-affiliated baseball back to our borough in 2001. Pignatano also participated in the opening night ceremonies at downtown's Barclays Center where the NBA's Nets began playing in November 2012. Quote, to me, he was Uncle Joe. He loved the city and loved talking about his days with the Dodgers and with Gill. He was a baseball lifer, end quote. Noted ex-Mets and Yankees outfielder Lee Mazzilli, who also played at Brooklyn's Lincoln High School. In local college baseball news, the Long Island University show, oh, excuse me, well, <laughs> that's a little faux pas on my part. <laughs> they just... <laughs> They had uh, they had something else to say other than the obituary for <laughs> excuse me Mike but um, <laughs> what do you what do you remember about do you remember anything about uh, both uh, his um, him at Cyclones games as well as uh, at opening night for Barclays? Uh, you know I knew but I completely forgot that he was at opening night at Barclays Center. Uh, yeah, he was there and and the next. The Nets wore, uh, you know, jerseys uh, in honor of the Brooklyn Dodgers, blue and blue and grays. Uh, so it was cool. And what can I say? He he's a Brooklynite through and through. Came back, hung out at Cyclones games. I remember him making an appearance very early on, maybe 2003. Uh, if he was there more than that, I don't remember that. This coming from Wikipedia. On Tuesday, September 24, 1957, Pignatano was behind the plate during the five, the final five innings of the Brooklyn Dodgers' last home game. Played at Ebbets Field against the Pittsburgh Pirates. He relieved starting catcher and future baseball Hall of Famer Roy Campanella in the top of the fifth inning, yeah. with the Dodgers leading 2 nothing, and helped guide pitcher Danny McDevitt to a complete game shutout yeah. victory. The Dodgers played their final three games in 1957 on the road, against the Philadelphia Phillies, then moved to Los Angeles during the offseason. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's so unbelievable the way these, some of these, these legacies are intertwined regarding National League New York baseball. Um, and, you know, he, he made his debut. Let's go to the baseball reference. He made his debut – on April 28, 1957, uh, looks like he made his debut only in the outfield, considering it's zero ABs, zero hits, zero home runs, zero RBIs, zero stolen bases. Um, <laughs> and I believe that he also has the infamy uh, of grounding into a triple play in his final AB. Do you remember that? You know, uh, I will not remember no. it actually from the time, but you remember I, I hearing that. I wouldn't remember that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to remember that either. <laughs> but 
But I, I do remember the Cyclones did pay, you know, homage to the last pitcher at Ebbets Field with the McDermott and the Pignatano plaque up on uh, the ballpark over at Coney Island. Right. And they had some of the retired numbers, but they took all that down. Uh, it's a shame. He seems to, you know, like it, it seems to be just one of those baseball lifer personalities. If you want to analyze his career, he wasn't very good, but probably marginally better than Bob Euchre was, who used to make make the the uh, how awful he was the butt of jokes. And you know, he obviously didn't get the same in you know uh, fame the way that Bob Euchre did in, uh, in terms of the national stage. Uh, but he does have a little bit of Bob Euchre. Uh, going for him in terms of just just that personality just driving driving him home and, and the the baseball talent maybe not so much he was a happy go lucky guy very affable uh, <laughs> and just enjoyed and just enjoyed being around you know a you know, Brooklyn guy and he he stayed true to it He got on base, you know, I mean, considering that he was generally hitting in the low 200s, some, you know, he was a 234 lifetimer. Um, yeah, he, got on, he got on base for a few years for the, I mean, you know, he, he was a champion in 1959. Um, I, I'm going to have to look at the, transition, the transactions. But, Mike, do you know he started on the Giants or the Mets? In 1962, in uh, he was purchased by the Mets from the Giants. That was yeah, in '62. That was with the Giants. So he started with the Giants and then made his way over to the finish off with the, his career with the Mets. Uh, and then and only got seven games in 1962 for the for the San Francisco Giants, but. Uh, right. that, you know, he was with the Kansas City Athletics in 1961, um, and it must have been kind of a kick for some of the Giants fans to see him and to see Pignatano in in a Giants uniform. But, um, I mean, he segued beautifully right over, uh, you know, to Mets lore. He got two RBIs at least, man. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was just... I would imagine for the fans of the day, it was just nice to have him home again. Yeah, uh, I, I can only imagine. Um, they were basically at the time, in many ways, collecting former Dodgers and Giants. Um, yeah. It wasn't he. He and ironically, uh, looking at it right now, um, he wore what number should eventually be retired with the Mets, which is number five, Mike. Uh, five is a very special, special number to me and a whole bunch of Met fans. It's it's just funny looking at it now because, I mean, this is total tangent over to David Wright, but um, David Wright would have been a Hall of Famer had he completed his career healthy, I believe. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure what the cutoff, what their their – thinking in terms of when to retire that number. But it, it is funny looking at that number right now uh, for the New York Mets and seeing that Joe Pignatano started the legacy of number five, uh, considering that one day I, I do expect it to be hanging there in City Field. 
as well as I. Uh, but give it time. You know, absence makes makes the heart grow fonder. So give it time. Uh, a little bit of separation from his playing career into retirement, and uh, let him get on the ballot. You know, and then we can take care of that. For now, this is the summer of Keith. Yes, this is the summer of Keith. That is for sure. Um, you know, I, 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 one thing that I read in terms of Joe Pignatano here, uh, going around and trying to find that, that article again, I didn't keep it open, but where was, where is the thing I clicked on? But, but they quoted him from Bay Ridge when talking about Bay Ridge, Mike. He was quoted as saying, basically, like, I can walk around Bay Ridge and nobody knows who I am. I like it that way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what? what, what there's how, a lot of what, truth to that. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to that. You know, look, the city itself has, what, 8 million people. Brooklyn has over 2.5 million people. As congested as it is, you still can live anonymously here. Very anonymously. Uh, and I know exactly what he's talking about. I'm trying to find that article that I, I found that in. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it, was, it was nice. But I'm going to go to Baseball Almanac, keep uh, just making the rounds uh, around the Internet regarding Joe Pignatano. And uh, I will read uh, the, 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 you know, if anybody ever goes to Baseball Almanac Day, it's basically a, a biography that also has some quotes regarding the player uh, if they, they've ever been accumulated. And it says at the beginning, uh, Joe Picantano was born on Sunday, August 4th, 1929 in Brooklyn, New York. Pignantano was 27 years old when he broke into the big leagues on April 28, 1957, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, quote, I'm alone in the dugout except for Casey Stengel filling out a lineup card on the opposite end. He finishes and comes to sit with me. He starts talking. He's talking in Stengelese, and I have no idea what he's talking about. But I'm thinking how nice is it that he's taking the time to make me feel welcome. A coach walks by and says to Casey, who's catching today? Stengel says, that Pignatani guy, if he gets here in time. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, I think, yeah, that's great. That, uh, you know, what does that make you think about? You know, um, Brooklyn sensibilities coming into conflict with, with Casey Stengel and his whirlwind <laughs> of thoughts and creative uh, sayings. <laughs> Exactly, and I, I always like. I wonder when I, I hear something like that, like what exactly was the game? What exactly, which game was he catching? Was it when you know the first? Was it must have been the first time he got traded there, or he got picked up by the the Mets? Like that that's yeah. that's what I would think it would be. You know. <laughs> yeah. So it, it a lot of people it. it a lot of people uh, 
this popped, you know, uh, uh, responded about their fond memories, you know. I'm trying later on in the uh, the show, um, Rob Barnes, uh, who's a Dodger super fan that we have on here all the time, I believe he had a, a – uh, a, a fantasy camp experience with Joe Pignatano over with the Dodgers. So um, hopefully we're able to have him talk about that. Um, but going to uh, society, uh, the uh, American Society for Baseball Research, um, excuse me, Society for American Baseball Research, of course, because it spells out Saber, uh, Joe Pignatano, um, I, uh, this is. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and read uh, the article written by Paul Hirsch. Joe Pignatano was almost out of baseball within a month of his debut. Instead, his mother intervened, intervened, and he enjoyed 38 years in the game, 27 of those in the majors as a player and coach. He was bullpen coach for the 1969 Miracle Mets and the backup catcher to Joe Roseboro of the 1959 Cinderella Dodgers team that upset the Braves in the playoffs and knocked off the White Sox in the World Series. Let's start with his near early exit from the game that became his life's work. Quote, I signed with the Dodgers in 1948 after a tryout with 50 other uh, players. They signed two of us, he remembered. I was first sent to uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, where I didn't play at all. Then I went to uh, Cairo, Illinois. Pignatado played in three Class D games for Cairo. In those games, he had 370, uh, excuse me, he hit 375, scored and drove in two runs, and got, quote, a standing ovation for catching a pop-up. No other catcher had caught a foul pop-up for them. As a reward, Pignatana was released a few days later, later and was sent back to his home in Brooklyn with a check for 127 and no cash in his pocket. Pignatano traveled 27 hours without food since he could not cash the check. He was sleeping in a train station in Chicago when a cop roused him and told him he couldn't sleep there. Quote, I explained that I had no money and was catching a train in the morning, said Pignatano. The police officer took Pignatano to a hotel, paid for the room, made sure he would be awakened in time to make his train. Once home in Brooklyn, he explained what had happened on the trip to his mother, Lucy. Miss Pignatano could not believe the way her boy had been treated and immediately called the Dodgers' offices and spoke with Fresco Thompson, who is Brooklyn's minor league chief. When she identified herself, Thompson congratulated her on how, how well Joe was doing. Quote, he couldn't be doing that well, Lucy Pignatano said. He's sitting right next to me. Mrs. Pignatano related Joe's story to Thompson, who immediately asked Joe to come to Ebbets Field. At Ebbets Field, Pignatano worked out for some local Dodger scouts, including head scout and Hall of Famer George Sisler. At the end of the workout, George uh, uh, Sisler excuse me, asked his staff to explain, quote, why we would release this player. No one could, and soon Pignatano was on his way to seven teams in seven leagues. Cambridge, Valdosta, Asheville, Elmira, Fort Worth, St. Paul, Montreal, and eventually Brooklyn. Pignatano was born in Brooklyn on August 4th, 1929, and always kept the borough as his home. He loved sports and was, quote, pretty good athlete, end quote. Growing up in the 1930s and 40s in New York, the only sports he played were baseball, softball, and stickball. He became a catcher because no one else wanted to do it. When the Dodgers offered him a contract, he was ecstatic. Quote, playing for the Dodgers was the pinnacle, he said. His minor league career after the hiccup in Cairo was essentially a straight line up the ladder. He, uh, his stop in Texas 
uh, in the Texas League in 1955 was notable, and that Pignatano hit just 199, but was still promoted to St. Paul in the American Association for 1956. He hit 295 for the Saints, following that up with a 299 performance in 70 games for Montreal in the International League in 1957 before getting his shot in Brooklyn. Quote, the Texas League was a pitcher's league then, Pignatano explained. Only a few guys hit over 300. I got off to a rough start and didn't recover until I got to St. Paul. Indeed, Maury Wills was Pignatano's teammate at Fort Worth, and the future National League MVP hit just 202 with only 12 steals. Six Texas League players hit 300 with more than 400 at-bats that year, but none spent as much time in the show as Pignatano or Wills. The highlight of Pignatano's time in Brooklyn was catching the last five innings of Danny McDevitt's shutout in the last game played at Ebbets Field. I didn't realize we might move. I, I, quote, I didn't realize we might move until the last week, Pignatano said. Quote, everyone in Brooklyn blamed Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley then, but it was really city planning uh, official Robert Moses. He thought O'Malley was bluffing and wouldn't arrange for him to purchase land at the site he wanted to build a new stadium. Pignatano and McDevitt reenacted the final major league pitch in Brooklyn before a game by the Mets affiliate Brooklyn Cyclones in Keysman uh, Park on June 24th, 2007. And I will uh, stop there for a second, uh, but I, I wanted to pass it back to you, Mike. Just some of that stuff. I mean, this is a really well-written favor article here. That's all outstanding stuff, man. You really have to have a love for the game to stick it out in the minor leagues like that for nine years before breaking in as a 27-year-old. That uh, requires a lot of dedication and love for the game, you know, and considering what he went through. I'm sure that wasn't the only incident. You know, if you go back in time, uh, the right. minor league has had a pretty tough. They did. I'm going to skip ahead to after his playing career. Um, it's something about Gil Hodges here, so... Yeah, let's we'll, we'll take it at the end of his career. Pignatano split 1962 between the Giants and the Mets. He played just seven games for San Francisco before his sale to the Mets on July 13th. Quote, Alan Dark never cared for me, Pignatano said at the time he backed up Ed Bailey and Tom Holler. With the Mets, Pignatano played out the string and hit into a triple play in his last big, lead at, uh, big league at bat on September 30th. By then, he knew the end was near. Quote, my arm was hurting, the fastball was starting to get to me, and I had a sense that it was about over, he said. Excuse me, Pignatano spent 1963 and 1964 in the International League with Buffalo and Rochester. His 1964 Rochester club won the International League Championship, and Pignatano was invited back for 1965, but the accumulating aches and pains led him to walk away. Pignatano also worked in the offseason, first as a plumber's helper for about 10 years, and then 23 years with the A&S Department Store in Brooklyn, helping with toys before Christmas in the January White Sale. Right, let's go back here. For all of you out there who know exactly what that is, uh, you're very deep-cut Brooklyn. But for those of you that don't know what the A&S Department Store is, I will pass it on to Mike. Abraham and Strauss. Uh, one of the leading department stores in the city. Do you? Uh, what else do you know about Abraham and Strauss? Uh, 
I can't tell you much more uh, other than, you know, uh, a lot of days, a lot of times this, this child found himself in that department store downtown Brooklyn. What what happened to it? Uh, you know what? The department store business, uh, there's a lot of behind-the-curtain things, you know. Conglomerates own most of them, and they're under one umbrella. Uh, I, I can't say for sure. I don't know if they went out of business or they were just retired or what. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I just it's a name that pops up so much within the the um uh the 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 Brooklyn lore, if you will. And um it total total tangent, but it seems like in many ways Bamburgers did was there a Bamburgers in Brooklyn or was that exclusive to Newark? Because it seems to be that like Bamburgers may have been the Abraham of and Strauss of Newark. I, I remember Bamburgers. I remember Bamburgers. Uh, although I can't, I don't recall lo- a location here in Brooklyn. It might have been right. here, but I don't think I ever went. Right. Well, uh, but I, I know, do remember Bamburgers. Yeah, and, and it's just it's fascinating because you're right that like there used to be a lot more department stores. Um, and then it's basically the big three survived or big four or five, you could say that survived around the country. But it seemed like there was a lot of local department store, you know, there there was, there was a lot of, there, there seems to be, we could have an entire podcast on like New York and Brooklyn department stores, Mike. (laughs) Uh, yeah, we could, uh, you know the the lifespan of department stores is it's a fascinating history uh there's a lot like i say a lot that goes on behind the curtains and why they come and go and why the big guys stuck around and who's available now but they're all headed in the same direction uh and, and that's because times are changing that whole business model is coming to an end Yeah, you know, eventually uh, we're going to be living in apartments in uh, Macy's and Lord and Taylor, but that's a whole other, like I said, a whole other episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We are reminiscing about the late, great Joe Pignatano, both connected to the Brooklyn Dodgers, as well as the legacy of National League Baseball in New York, the New York Mets. I am reading from uh, the Society of uh, American Baseball Research, uh, the Joe Pignatano article that was written by Paul Hirsch. It's very well written, very well researched. And uh, we're at the tail end. We're, at, we're reading from the Mets part of his career and just went on a little bit of a tangent because it was written as the A&S department store, but I, I felt like we needed to expand a little bit. So um, around the mid-60s, Pignatano, he was always working in the offseason, first as a plumber's helper, for about 10 years and then 23 years with the Abraham and Strauss department store in Brooklyn, helping with toys before Christmas and the January white sale quote, I needed to work in the off season to make ends meet. He said he got into coaching following a winter 1964 social evening with ex Dodgers teammate, Gil Hodges, who 
who had become manager of the Washington Senators and their wives. Quote, at the end of the evening, Gil said, I have a question I want to ask you. Would you like to come to the Senators and be my first base coach next season? I told him I'd love to. Pignatano worked for the Senators from 1965 to 1967 before following Hodges to New York. Yogi Berra was established as first base coach on the Mets, so Pignatano moved to the bullpen. Quote, my job was to work with the relievers, make sure they were ready, and advise Gill, he said. Pignatano's most famous contribution may have been the vegetable garden he nurtured in the Mets bullpen. Quote, in 1969, excuse me for a second, Pardon me. Um, in 1969, I discovered a wild tomato plant in the bullpen and nurtured it the rest of the season, he remembers. We got some tomatoes off it, but most important, we won the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> what a quote. What a quote. Like, I really I want to frame that, right? That's great. On my wall. Um I, I would love I'd love to do some like wacky artwork with like the Shea Stadium facade in the background of that quote. We got some tomatoes off it, but most important, we won the whole thing. Or maybe some vines that has the Mets bullpen uh, uh, golf cart in the art piece. I'm gonna connect. <laughs> there you go. This is. <laughs> uh, going back after that, I kept up the garden as long as I was with the Mets as a good luck charm. Uh, Pignatano feels the turning point of the 1969 season was the September game at Shea Stadium against the Cubs. Tommy Agee had been knocked down in the first inning, and Jerry Kuzman retaliated by drilling Ron Santo on the arm. While Santo continued to play, he was less effective in the Mets past Chicago to win the title. Quote, Kuzman sent a message, especially to Leo, to Rocher, the Cubs manager. Leo started the whole thing, Pignatano said. That season... Uh, was baseball at its best. We had a bunch of young kids and a few veterans playing great. Clendenin won a lot of games for us with late hits, and Jerry Grody remained the best defensive catcher I have ever seen. Pignantano continued to coach with the Mets through 1981 and finished with three years as a Braves coach under Joe Torre. He was with the Mets when Hodges died in 1972, but said the death didn't really affect the team. Oh, wow. Quote, we lost a good man, life went on, and baseball went on. We all missed Gill, but it was just life, end quote. You know, Mike, let's go on a tangent here then. I could see that feeling the way, like, to somebody in the moment at the time, uh, that's what it felt like. But it, just like looking back on it, and, you know, we do a lot of um, – musing about this over on the Metsian podcast, shameless plug. I, you know, we, we kind of pinpoint the entire turning point of the franchise and uh, it, 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 it's taken them this long to get over it. If, you know, and, and, and we, we believe they are starting to, but that, you know, Gil Hodge's death was the line of demarcation. And without that general's guidance, the entire franchise has basically taken 50 years to grow up. Yeah, you could say that. It just goes to show that, you know, two people don't look at the same thing the same way. 
that's his opinion. A lot of people hold a different opinion. Uh, we don't know. We don't know why he formed that that opinion. Uh, as you say, he could have just been caught in the moment. But uh, it's very interesting to say the least. Right. Uh, but uh, well, I you know I, I obviously I don't know when he was quoted uh, necessarily. Um, uh, it it could have been much later, but. For somebody who's living in the moment, I mean, you know, we we talk about M. Donald Grant, we talk about Whitey Herzog, we talk about Gil Hodges, we we as Met fans pinpoint specific moments at the time that set the course. Uh, other than just 1980 alone and Jeff Wilbon, you know, as well as Nelson Doubleday, but primarily Jeff Wilbon became the most negative or positive guiding force of that 1980 transaction. Um, and yeah, thank God that we're, we're at a different point that most med fans believe is, is clearly, uh, the way I say it, we're finally, we're finally all grown up to quote a, a movie called swingers. But, um, going back to Joe Pignatano, his top salary as a coach was $43,000, which he says was more than his total income in six years as a big league player. Now he fills his days with golf while enjoying a pension from baseball that is, quote, far greater than any salary I earned as a player or coach. He also makes appearances at Dodgers and Mets fantasy camps. Picantano says he always works hard and that all his employers got their money's worth. That, that was in quotes. Pignantano married his wife, Nancy, in 1954. Together they raised two sons and transitioned to proud grandparents. He passed along his memorabilia and love of the game. All that stuff I have now belongs to my grandson, Pignantano told Sports Collectors Digest. Quote, his name is Joe Pignantano, and he's from Brooklyn. <laughs> and that, again, once more is uh, Sabre Society for American Baseball Research, Joe Pignantano article, written by Paul Hirsch. Um, right. You know, he's, he's and, certainly going to be missed. And Yeah, go ahead. Well, if you were a pre-teenage kid like I was in the 70s, after Ed Cranepool, Joe Pignantano was uh, like the last link to the, to the good old days, put that in quotes. You know, he was the last link to those happier times before the dark years took over Shea Stadium. You know, as you say, he stuck around with the team through 81. Uh, you know, Joe Torrey arrived to the Mets in, what, 75, I think. But, it, you know, it was right. Joe Pignatano that maintained that link to the old team. Uh, again, uh, Ed Crample retired after the 79 season. And, uh, there weren't much left after that. There was something that was just celebrating the game of baseball with the New York Mets franchise uh, at the beginning there. You know, the fact that they would have these old-timers days where they would have a pirate. They would have a, an, a Cleveland Indian before they were the Guardians now. Um, now... No, should they do something like that now with their old-timers? They no. They've accumulated 60 years that they can have just New York Mets 
but there was something that was really, uh, you know, and, you know, say what we want about M. Donald Grant. I don't think this was just a Joan Payson thing. I think that um, he unfortunately gets very uh, pigeonholed into a certain, and, and rightly so, the way that he handled the latter years. Um, but M. Donald Grant was here from the beginning. And you you must give credit where credit's due to all parties involved regarding the way that they, they seemed to celebrate not just all of baseball, but all of New York baseball, especially back then with some of those old-timers days. And thank God old-timers days are back now. Well, you know, uh, they were celebrating the National League legacy, uh, first and foremost. So like you say, now we have 60 years uh, of accumulation and talent but, to work with. But even, you know, you would, I just want to throw it out there. They, you know, they would even have old Yankees at the time. Yeah, well, that's okay. That's It, it still made the day fun. Yeah, it still made the day fun. Uh, I'm Donald Grant. Or not, you know, the sun shines on the dog's posterior at least once a day. And there you go. M. Donald Grant, <laughs> you know. Touche. I mean, like, you know, when you trade somebody like Tom Seaver, like, what, what, what are you, what are you supposed <laughs> to do after that regarding your legacy? It's <laughs> a great point. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I, I believe, you know, hopefully we're joined by Rob soon uh, and he can reminisce over uh, Joe Pignantano. But I'm going to go on an old-timers day little tangent here. Um, what are you looking forward to most? I'm still trying to figure out whether, you know, they were they were uh, tugging our leg regarding Joanna Cespedes being on old-timers day, Mike. <laughs> what are you looking forward to most regarding this coming old-timers day for the New York Mets? Well, you know, uh, I'm look. I'm hoping to see a lot of old crowd favorites, uh, people who haven't necessarily been around for a quite a long period of time. I hope some of these players are available. Uh, obviously, we're going to see some of the '86 Mets there and 2015 Mets. Uh, but uh, I, you know, getting some of those '73 uh, guys and '69 guys. Some of them are still around. I hope they make it. And I just hope it's a, a big celebration of Mets baseball. Uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. And, you know, it would be nice if certain players could come. I know uh, any, anybody, anybody from the past, you know, uh, just make it a fun day. I'm not going to name one and exclude another, but some of the fan favorites from the past, you know, just try to do as best they can and, make accommodations and arrange transportation for some of these people and get it done, which I know they're going to do. You know, they're going to handle this with far more polish than, uh, you know, former festivities, let's just say. <laughs> I, I Yeah, I don't know what you mean. Um, I, I, I know that one of our friends, Frank Thomas of uh, Pittsburgh and New York Met floor, uh, is going to be uh, joining the the festivities, oh, um, and he just seems oh, that's to, great. he seems to be uh, just you know trucking along. 
Yeah, no, I mean, if he can get out there and, you know, have a good day in the sun, that'll be great. I would love to see him. Um, I was going to, you know, I had a, a spot to go. Uh, I, I was going to say, you know, of course, like we're we're mainly a Brooklyn podcast where we uh, touch along Dodgers, of course, a lot. Uh, but we love talking about the legacy of Brooklyn and and National League Baseball in New York City. Um, and, you know, I, I do believe Rob is going to join us within the next five minutes. So, Mike, legacy talk. The New York Mets, 2022 so far, um, they seem – I didn't – I don't – I. It's hard for me to go, you know, we talked on the Mentine podcast last night, and I don't want to seem overly optimistic, but something is just, like, resonating to me that this team has the makings to impress us farther more than we expected them to. And if you notice, I'm talking delicately because I don't want to jinx it, we still have that element of us <laughs> involved, you know, thinking that we're just going to be jinxed because it's all about us. We're, we're all, every single one of us fans who think along those lines, um, <laughs> we're just selfish <laughs> assholes who think it's all about us. <laughs> that, that, that we have something affecting the, the energy of the team, but that's the case, you know, like I, I, I you know, Everybody doesn't want to get their hopes up here, but I think the way that this team can weather the storm, as as is, you know, was the phrase that I kept using the other night, um, I think the way that they can weather the storm, uh, we may be, you know, like right now I'm just, I'm, I want to see, especially tonight, like after a win like last night where they, they were down 2 nothing early, but then one soundly they have to win tonight and get to 15 games over five i want to see that 30 and 15 record even if i just jinxed it i want to see that 30 and 15 record tonight because i just want to see this team keep pushing harder faster stronger six million dollar man we have 36 million dollar men on the team (laughs) well a lot of what you see, I think, has to do with Buck Showalter. Uh, a lot of attention to detail uh, that this manager just won't allow them to screw up. Uh, a lot of on-field professionalism. Uh, the new hitting coach is working wonders. He, you know, unpolluted these batters' minds, uh, so to say. So uh, I think they're going about their business in a very uh, detail-oriented and professional manner. Uh, and that comes from Buck Schulter, and he's going to guide them through. You know, he'll be a guiding light, and he'll lead, and they'll follow. But, you know, ultimately players play the game, and they determine the outcomes. But uh, there's a lot of leadership in here in this locker room that, you know, has been absent over the last couple of years. And I think that's clearly evident, you know, uh, the team and their performance this year compared to the last couple of years. 
Well, when thinking about, you know, who we're talking about today, Joe Pignantano, the bullpen coach, it just shows, goes to show you how every single little detail, including, you know, generally speaking, most fans aren't thinking about the bullpen coach. But, and, and I'm going to look up, you know, I, I sometimes, I remember Ricky Bonus used to be the bullpen coach, but I don't know who is the bullpen coach now for the New York Mets. Um, but considering, you know, we always give on the other podcast, Jeremy Hefner, a lot of credit for what he does with this pitching staff. It must, you know, it, it's got to be uh, mentioned what the bullpen coach, uh, who needs to start planting tomatoes in honor of Joe Pigantano, <laughs> what he's doing this year. You know, they have their responsibilities. And, uh, you know, uh, performance and, and the record speaks for itself. Uh, you know, we're going to paint a broad picture and say that whatever they're doing is working. Uh, when the team loses, we look for people to blame. The uh, Mets bullpen coach this year is Craig Bjornson, while Jeremy Barnes is serving as the assistant. Um, sorry, well, that part. He's Jeremy Barnes is the assistant hitting coach, and, and we don't need to go really into the weeds here with the 2022 New York Mets, but I thought that was going to be the assistant uh, bullpen coach, so apologies there. Um, but, yeah, you got you got to give credit where credit's due. Even, um, God, what is, what is the new guy's name with the beard who had blood on his thumb last night? Uh-uh. I don't know. Uh, last night I was watching that game with one eye. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, so, last night's game. On Buck Showalter's birthday. Uh, let's see what his name was. He is a bullpen arm. Um, need the box score, please. There it is. Chris Holderman? Colin Holderman. You know, this is... Uh, you, got, you were talking about Buck Walter. This is the type of thing where it's next man up. And... You know, it used to be every time you would see these random bullpen names that had just made the, you know, either the bus ride from Syracuse or, God forbid, the plane ride from Vegas, uh, you would kind of shudder, uh, even though some of these names have gone on to have good careers elsewhere. But just thinking about the the stark difference from the way people are taking control of the moment and the situation and making a name for them themselves immediately. Buck Showalter has gone to this Colin Holderman guy a bunch lately. He knows what he's doing. I really don't know what else to say. That's why he gets paid to manage the mess, to know these things and utilize all his assets in one cohesive plan to win baseball games. 
that's what he does best. Uh, and other managers are, you know, uh, less apt, and some are better at what they do. But, you know, uh, I think Showalter's upper echelon of the manager's category. So, you know, this is what he gets paid to do, bro. Assess and, and react and implement and, and demand performance from players. Here, here's a big chance. Take the ball. Go. Go out there. Perform. Uh, and part of that, you know, uh, you have to be uh, authoritative about it and say, go in. But there's a part of you that also needs to be uh, more, uh, a more gentler teacher. And Buckshaw Walter knows how to strike a balance between all aspects of his job. And that's why I have the utmost confidence in him. And as do I. Uh, it has been lovely talking some. Um, it's been lovely talking some New York National League legacy talk. But without further ado, let's bring on Dodgers superfan Robert Barnes. Robert, I'm, I'm glad you're able to join us today. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Hi, Mike. Good to, good to hear you guys. Sorry, I was late. I was actually doing a little work on the side. So, hello, Robert. Right. Well, Hi, hey, we know that, you know, being a Dodgers fan is not your uh, your day job. So <laughs> it's it's all right. We're glad that you're able to, to catch us uh, a little bit. Thanks for having me. Right, I'm so, always a pleasure and honor to be on with you guys. So, Robert, you know, we were talking earlier. Uh, we, we, we got a little bit deep in the weeds of the 2022 New York Mets still kind of making the connection to the fact that uh, they have a bullpen coach too, who Joe Pignatano was for them for many years. Um, but yes, you, had, you, you had some memories about uh, Mr. Pignatano. 2008 Vero Beach, a week in a glorious week, the end of January, beginning of February, Dodgers fantasy camp, uh, technically the second to last one that the Dodgers hosted there. There they hosted two in a row because it was the, the the very very last year they were in zero. Joe was one of the coaches for the week. Just an incredibly wonderful human being with incredibly great stories. Just talked to anybody and everybody all the time about anything. And in the evenings they would have nighttime talk sessions after everybody was exhausted after playing baseball all day. And in different parts of the week would be different uh, groups. They would have the 70s Dodgers. They would all talk up one night. Then they'd have the Brooklyn guys talk. They had Carl was there and Duke was there that week. And Joe was up since Joe obviously covered both both time frames. And they'd all come up and give like 15, 20, 30-minute speeches about their times and stories and then open up to the, open up to the, to the campers to ask questions. And just picking those guys' brains for that time was just, just well worth the price of admission they were just super super gracious to have to be there super just uh wonderful to have us there and sign anything and everything you want and just just an, an experience i will never forget as long as i live beautiful and um i i'm you know you know so much about both brooklyn and los angeles dodgers history we kind of glossed over uh Mr. Pignatano's Los Angeles career. You know, we talked about how he was a 59 Dodger, of course, and he, mm-hmm. he, he 
tended to he he wouldn't hit for high average, but it seemed like you know considering how low his average was, he would get on base. His 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 batting average for uh, uh, basically some of those early Los Angeles Dodgers years was you know basically like three thirty to three sixty. Uh, what do you know about from your your research of Dodgers history about what kind of player he was for the Los Angeles Dodgers? From what I recall in my readings and my research and stuff like that, he was obviously he wasn't the main guy, you know. And in Brooklyn, he was always behind Campy, and in LA, he was always behind Roseboro. So he was always he was always your guy that would catch one day a week. Usually, like a, like like what you see now, the day game after the night game, the Sunday afternoon game, right? Come in and pinch it, maybe a late inning, maybe a late inning defensive help if it's a blowout game or whatever. But like you said, he was always back then. You know, back then guys were put the ball in play. You were embarrassed to strike out. Nowadays, you know, obviously we all know the game now, and everybody's swinging for the fences and strikeout rates, but home run rates or whatever. But that's not what we're talking about. Put the ball in play. Make sure you make the contact, get the, move the runner along, um, make the productive out. Do what you can do to help the team win, not fatten your stats so you can get a gazillion-dollar contract. And that's what I always remember Joe as being, and that's what I remember him talking about as well, is when it comes time to, especially when a guy like him, a role-player guy, you know, you're only getting three, four at-bats a week. You've got to make the most of it. Mike, uh, just wherever you want to go from there, just hearing that. Uh, somewhere along the same lines, you've got to understand that this is baseball before free agency. So if you made the grade and, you know, he earned a position on the Dodgers, you, you stayed there. There wasn't a lot of movement. When a team came to town, you, know, you knew exactly who was coming. You could recite the, the lineup in your mind uh, year in, year out. So, you know, once Joe uh, earned that backup position, uh, you know, back then people didn't move much. So he was entrenched there. And as Robert says, you know, getting us three or four at-bats a week. Uh, but that job was his. And, and it's good for us because, uh, you know, we can look back and look on it so glowing. Robert, do you have anything uh, else that you remember about Joe Piccantana? Yeah, actually, it's another little side story. It's another side story about how I almost had another brush with him like three years ago. I was actually playing in, a, in the Roy Hobbs tournament down in uh, Fort Myers in Florida. I ended up going to a friend of a friend's house on a golf course about 15 miles south of the south of the south of Fort Myers. I don't remember the exact town. With a buddy, and buddy of mine takes me over there because he's staying with him. I drove him down there. And he goes, and, I'm, and I'm, we're sitting out on this guy's back porch, beautiful place overlooking a golf course. And we just start talking about stuff. And we talk about I'm a Dodger fan. And he goes, he goes hey, Joe Pignatano lives on the golf course. He lived like five doors away from this guy. And I'm like, dude, if we had more time, I'd love to go over and knock on his door. But, of course, I didn't. Just, just, just a really cool small world story. And I, and I, and I told the guys, well, if you ever see him, you know, Give him my name. Remember, and I hope he remembers me. And I always had really nice stories and nice memories of, of the week I spent with him. It's a little, little small world stuff here. Well, it's it's just beautiful the way that you're that you've been able to connect with Dodgers history and Dodgers lore 
both through just your own personal research uh, and connections and, and, and communications, uh, as well as the fantasy camps that you've been to. No, without a doubt. I mean, it's like, I thought I was a fan before. I thought I knew baseball before I went to those things, but now ever since I've went to that and I've been actually playing adult baseball, it's nothing like what you see on TV, but I've been playing the game in my in our own ways as people in our 50s and I'm approaching 60 or, or I'm still fortunate enough to do. Thinking, first of all, that you know the game, when, you, when you're on the diamond and literally seeing things in play in front, in front of you, I feel I've learned more about the game in the 15 years I've been playing and I've also learned more about the history of the game. Having attended those camps only fueled my passion for learning about Dodgers history, both L.A. and Brooklyn, since attending that. And sadly, with the passing of Joe, you know, the, another tide of Brooklyn is gone, and they are fewer and fewer as we, as, as we, as we progress through time. Well, you have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and, uh, you know, our most prolific guest, Carl Erskine, I, I would love to get his take on uh, Joe Pignatano, but I, I didn't um, connect with Carl, uh, you know, in the nick of time, as you would say, for this podcast. But we will uh, we will revisit that further. Um, I before we go to the final word, guys, just based off of what Rob just said, I'm going to go to you first, Mike, and I guess. Uh, I, you know what Rob just said. It kind of just we've been taught. You know, we we do a really good job of going across the 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 spectrum of of of, of baseball history, not just Brooklyn baseball history, but baseball history itself on a lot of these podcasts. So as we go through everything that we've talked about today, Joe Pignatano that era of baseball, the, the, the amount of era, eras that we said Joe Picantano was a part of. Um, and we talked about current base. We talked about the current Mets. I'll start with you, Mike. What is, two months into the season, where is your current final word on where baseball stands? <laughs> Oh, where baseball stands. Uh, that's Pandora's box, Sam. Uh, but I answered this very briefly once before. Uh, in the 19th century, they played baseball, two words. In the 20th century, the game that I grew up on, uh, baseball was one word. Uh, here we are in the 21st century. We're 22 years into this endeavor. And what we play now is modern ball. Uh, and it's different uh, from the game I grew up, and the game I grew up on was different uh, than the game, say, 50 years prior to me being born. It's an ever-evolving game, an ever-changing game. So uh, embrace it because that is baseball. Baseball has always embodied change. Uh, but you say history, modern day, and connections. You know, Joe Picanatano was my connection. He was my connection to that past of 1969. I was two years old when they won that. But, you know, having him around when I was a single-digit child, going to Shea Stadium, screaming down from the load section, hey, Joe, and him actually looking up, hey, how you doing, kid? You know, 
those are my connections and those handful of players that were with the Mets in 69 and 73 that, you know, when I came uh, into being a Met fan in, in latter 73, 74, 75, you know, I appreciated having those guys there. A, knowing I was too young to see 69, but they were still there. And there was a connection to that. And Joe Picantano was a huge part of that. Like I say, him and Rube Walker, the pitching coach, mm-hmm. uh, you know, managers came, came and gone. We, managed, we mentioned a couple already. Gil Hodges, Yogi Berra, uh, and there was others, uh, Joe Torrey, you know. Uh, but Rube Walker and Joe Picantano remained and, and stayed, and they were in our view throughout. And he was one of those people who kept us connected to the good days of 69 and 73. So I was always appreciative of that. And I, I bid him well and hope he rests in great comfort. It's That's beautiful. And, you know, like I, I just want to say wherever baseball ends up, you know, like you always say, you open yourself up you have baseballs falling out um, or, you know, what are you, if you, if you want to give me the exact phrase, <laughs> if you cut me open, baseballs will fall out. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> so Rob, you know, I, I will contain this basically in the same way that I asked uh, Mike, Except, you know, you've been watching your Los Angeles Dodgers, your Brooklyn slash Los Angeles Dodgers, as you you would like to refer to them as. So um, having watched two, uh, with everything that has happened over the last few years with baseball, where we've been talking about the game going, how the game, you know, so many people speculating the game is dying, they're not getting as many fans, even though I think, you know, there's plenty of YouTube channels devoted to people clicking, you know, having baseball clickbait. So something seems to be clicking, if you will, uh, pun intended. So, Rob, the status of baseball from your perspective, including the 2022 Los Angeles Dodgers. I'll start with that. And it's like, <clears throat> uh, I don't know if it's a, I'm very fortunate uh, to be a fan of the Dodgers. They've just, well, I mean, I've obviously put a ton of money into it, and, uh, and they're reaping the benefits of that. You know, we can never have enough pitching, as you all Mets fans all know. We can never have enough pitching. So the pitching holds up. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. It's been it's been a fun ride. It's uh, and as we get to Memorial Day, that uh, the proverbial first third of the season, I couldn't be more happy with the way the season's going going so far. And uh, I like what Mike said, how eloquently he put it about the evolution of the game. And you talk about about baseball perhaps dying. I really think the pandemic did a lot of a lot of good for baseball, and particularly youth baseball, because during 2020 and into 2021, there were you could there are so many things you could not do. You could be outside playing baseball. From what I've heard, you know, a lot of the individual sports. Golf was having troubles. I've heard I was hearing stories of golf courses getting shut down before the pandemic, and then all of a sudden everybody could go out, and that's the one thing they could do. That they, so golf courses flourished. I've heard the same about youth baseball. And you talk about the, the proliferation of YouTube channels 
every time on, I, I watch a baseball game and I see a foul ball and I see some, some adult gets it and hands it to a kid, I'm thinking that's the potential to make a fan for life. The same thing that happened to me by meeting those Dodgers when I was that age, when I was six, seven years old in the late 60s, early 70s, when I met those Dodgers as, as, as that age, that made me a fan for life. You know, you got to make those connections and then so they can flourish and grow up with the game, play the game, experience the game, watch it at the highest possible level on the world and just fall in love with it as we all do. So hopefully the game will continue to grow the next generation. I mean, we, we need to take it amongst ourselves as to introduce the next generation of fans to a game. Go to a game, get a foul ball, give it to a kid. Do that. Do what you can to help make that next generation be, fall in love with the game just like we have. Mike, the World Baseball Classic is going to be in uh, 2023 next year. Are you looking forward to it? I am. Uh, I'm glad they're resuming that. I think it's a, it's a great stage uh, for the world to get together for a common cause, that being baseball. I, I love the baseball classic. I do, too. What about you, Rob? You know what? It's baseball, and normally it comes on right in, like, February. You know, we're not ready to watch spring training games. I think it's fun. The last time it was on, I loved watching it. I thought it was a fun event. I thought it was really, really well publicized, a really, well, really, a really good production of it. And, hey, like we say, it's baseball. We get to watch it, especially in the middle of winter. I agree. Um, I think that there uh, a lot of people kind of, you know, disc, you know, put a lot of disclaimers in, like, you know, part of their skepticism. Uh, but then once the baseball is actually being played, it's just so exciting. The problem just does fall into the timing of it all, uh, how there's really no proper time that you can actually get something like this done. Um, yeah, no, it's just, it, that, that's the only concern. Uh, but every time, I mean, I'm just, you know, especially from our Mets perspective, uh, David Wright was, is kind of a big part of U.S. baseball history lore, um, with a, a few, I think like a, at least a couple to a few iconic U.S. baseball moments. Uh, so, Mike, that's one of the reasons why I love that element of it. Uh, there's been so many great elements of with the World Baseball Classic. Uh, I, I, I'm ecstatic. I'm glad they're, they're going to resume. I can't wait to you know, see the games again. And, you know, we're not getting cheated. Uh, these were good teams fielded by their respective countries. Uh, you mentioned David Wright, mm-hmm. fortifying USA. So this is real good competition, real teams. Uh, the Netherlands, they uh, thrilled their fans uh, two classics in a row. Uh, you know, you got USA. Japan is a powerhouse and need recognition on a global basis. Uh, and then, of course, the other powerhouses, DR, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Colombia, all these countries. Uh, I love the endeavor. You know me, I like Winter League Baseball. And I always pay attention to uh, the Caribbean series, and the Baseball Classic is designed to start right after the Caribbean series. 
and it's really the only time you can squeeze it in. Uh, baseball is the second longest uh, seasonal sport behind hockey, and you know when it comes time for the Olympics and things of that nature, World Cup, you see what they do. They take a break. I don't think baseball should take a break. Uh, but when do you when do you play the classic? Before the season or after the season? Uh, that's been the age old debate. Yeah, uh, that's tough. Um, Rob, I'll pass it to you on the timing of it all to segue. But also, you know, I have vivid memories specifically of David Wright. Uh, just, you know, things I still look up on YouTube of David Wright in the World Baseball Classic. In fact, I, I've only last looked up the Grand Slam, so I'll have to look up the walk-off against, I believe it might have been Puerto Rico. But... Uh, Rob, on top of the timing of it all, your opinion of it, um, any Dodger-related, connected World Baseball Classic moments you remember? Honestly, honestly, no, not really. The, the first thing that popped in my head when you started talking about it was, I think it was the, at the Adam Jones catch in San Diego over the short wall. In the last one, it was just just an incredible catch. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. But you talk about Dodgers, and, and, and nothing really pops into my brain. I know a couple guys played, but I think back to the to the to the precursor, which obviously it's all USA Baseball. I, I remember obviously Tommy Lasorda managing the nineteen uh, ninety two Olympics or whatever, whatever eighty eight Olympics or whatever it was. Yeah, whatever that year was, and also Reggie Smith, former Dodger. Uh, Former Dodger hitter, which is he's still actually teaching hitting in San Diego in, in his mid seventies, and he can still rake. He was the he ran he was in charge of USA Baseball for a long time. And those are my Dodger tie-ins to to USA Baseball. Hmm. Well, you have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and uh, we have been mostly talking about the uh, late, great Joe Pignatano, Brooklyn-born, Brooklyn-raised, and uh, big connection to the uh, both the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers, as well as the New York Mets. And uh, joining us today was the Brooklyn trolley bogger, Mike LaColon, uh, as well as later on Dodgers superfan Rob Barnes. Uh, Illini, did I pronounce it right, Illini Dodgers? Yes, you did. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Illini Dodgers on uh, Twitter, uh, Rob Barnes. Um, and I will go to you first, Rob, for your uh, final word as well as shameless plug. Tell everybody where they can find you. <laughs> shameless plug. Uh, at Illini Dodgers on Twitter, you know, I tweet about, huh, the Illini and the Dodgers. What a clever handle. So, Yes, those are my two main passions. Depending on what season it is, is what passion comes up and comes to the forefront. Um, first of all, I'm always honored and humbled to to offer my opinions and my and my experiences with 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 my uh, Dodger fandom. And rest in peace, Joe. You know, it's it's sad how many there's like I said earlier, there's not many ties to Brooklyn left, and a lot of the ties to LA are going as well too. Uh, as my late father used to always say, time doesn't stop. It always keeps going forward. And enjoy the moment. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Uh, be kind to everyone else. 
And I look forward to talking with you guys again. Thank you again for having me on. Perfect, Rob. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for always joining us. And uh, over to the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LeColon, both for his final word and shameless plug. Uh, no shameless plug. Uh, this is about Joe Pignatano, and I just want to say, rest well, my fellow Brooklyn White. Well said. And uh, I will just finish with, Rest in peace, Joe Pignatano. Um, It's both in terms of the Brooklyn Dodgers as well as everything I've uh, heard about you from New York Mets lore. Uh, I know that you were planting those tomatoes up there in the Garden of Heaven as we speak. So without further ado, let's go Brooklyn and rest easy, Joe. Take care, all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Seth.